We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide, through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley, and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Well, good morning and welcome to Cornwall Church. If we have not met, uh, my name is Brian Mengel and I am the campus pastor at our Skagit campus in Mount Vernon. I love the opportunities that Pastor Bob avails to me to preach, teach uh, here in Bellingham. One, I love seeing you uh, in be- uh, between and before services. Two, I look much taller to our Skagit campus on the big screen down there. So. Good morning to you in Skagit, uh, also to those in Boca and online. Forget what I said, I'm actually six feet tall, so uh, <laughs> it is good to be here as uh, last weekend, Pastor Bob launched us into this multi-week series called Jesus is the Subject. And I don't know about you, but I am really excited about this series. I love the Gospel of Mark. At 16 chapters, it's shorter compared to his fellow gospel authors at 21, 24, and 28 chapters. And Mark, as mentioned last week, he dives in. He has a rapid, fast-paced writing style that gets right to the point. And as Pastor Bob mentioned, he sails right over the birth of Jesus and gets right out of the gate with his pronouncement, his baptism, and that epically cool moment. Did you catch that last weekend when the Trinity was together at one time? Today we pick up where Pastor Bob left off. And if you've read ahead what you are encouraged to do here at Cornwall, you know that Jesus does not waste time. Jesus does not waste time. Ken McLeod, who attends at our Skagit campus, told me it's apparent Jesus knew it was go time. How do we know? Well, he actually says so. He says in verse 38, this is why I came. This is why I have come. That work being the work of the ministry, that there was no time like the present to get started. And so he did. And so we pick up Mark's narrative in chapter 1, verse 21, and it says this. Mark records, Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. And when the Sabbath day had came, he went into the synagogue to begin to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with a real authority, quite unlike teachers of religious law. Now, let's pause for just a moment for some historical notes. 
Capernaum was situated on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this would become kind of an HQ, a headquarters for Jesus. It'd be his home base. In fact, Mark 2 records that Jesus returning home to Capernaum was a returning, a coming home. This is, this is where everything's going to happen. In fact, a lot of his ministry and his miracles and his teaching would occur here. And so we find Jesus teaching in the synagogue, which is not uncommon, teaching that is, as it was customary for a congregant or a special guest, someone distinguished to be chosen to teach at the service. But we see here is they were amazed. In fact, the literal translation is they were struck with attention. Jesus' teaching was radically different. Instead of quoting other guys as authority, Jesus spoke with God's authority. So something was new. Something was different. Mark then continues. Suddenly a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So mid-teaching, Jesus now interrupted with this would-be party crasher. But notice how he handles the situation. It says, Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet, come out of the man, he ordered. And at that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into convulsion, and came out of him. Cool, calm, collected. And though he spoke with this great authority, he exercised great control. In fact, every translation I could find about this particular moment had Jesus saying the same command in the same way. Be quiet, be silent, be still. He didn't get riled up in this moment. I get the sense that Jesus, who was teaching, wanted to handle this quickly and quietly. One for this guy's sake, but two, so as not to distract from his teaching, so that they would not miss the main point. And then this caused this already amazed audience more amazement. It says, amazement gripped the audience, Mark 1.21, and they began to discuss what happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked each other excitedly. It has such authority, even the spirits obey his orders. And the news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the region of Galilee. I love actually how Mark records the amazement, how it gripped the audience. As if describing a movie theater when you're on the edge of your seat waiting for the next moment of the movie. And that amazement then translated to this buzz. Buzz that spread quickly. It'd be an understatement to say if this happened today, Jesus would be liked on Facebook He'd be trending on YouTube. He'd be viral. What news was spreading, though? What news was this that everyone was so excited about? Jesus commanded in words and in action a great authority. Jesus commanded this great authority in, in his words and in what he did. And this was brand new. People were taking notice. But he was just getting started. Mark continues, after Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. And then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. 
The way Mark describes this sickness, this is not a common cold. This is not a 24-hour flu. She had been sick for some time, which makes this bedside healing all the more miraculous. Twice now, Jesus has performed an instant black and white change. One minute, a man is demon-possessed. The next, he's free of that control. One minute, a woman is lying sick in her bed. The next, she's preparing dinner for Jesus. Indisputable change. And as often with Jesus' miracles, it was very much for the person, but also for the disciples. He's revealing to them, these newly chosen guys, who he was. And it doesn't say they were amazed. In fact, we don't get a lot about how they were feeling or what they were thinking. But how could they not be amazed? And remember that buzz that was created earlier at the synagogue? Well, now that buzz is at Jesus' door. It says, that evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus In fact, the whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Now Mark doesn't go into a lot of detail on the motive here. Because sometimes his healing, as we know, was dependent on the one sick and their faith. Sometimes it was the one that was bringing the sick person. Regardless of the reason, it is clear that what Jesus is doing here is laying the groundwork. He's building the case for what he was going to do. He was earning the right to be able to teach them later about life change. So for Simon's mother-in-law and for those brought to Jesus, he healed with urgency. He healed with urgency. What we're doing here, gang, is we're painting a picture of who Jesus is and was in this very early stage of his ministry. He commanded with authority. He healed with urgency. And then Mark goes on. He says, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went to an isolated place to pray. You know, I think about our initiative here to pray first Bible scholars estimate this happened somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. And Jesus' praying was not unique. In fact, many agree that his timing was not unique to find that special place, that moment of solitude. The tense that Mark uses here indicates his prayer life was ongoing. It was perpetual. It was part of his relational rhythm with God. Modeling for us the importance, the value of prayer and finding that intentional quiet time with the Lord. Another cool thing to note here, that so far as we've looked at the text, everything Jesus has done, his ministerial work, has been for the benefit of others. But here, his time in solitude, his time in prayer, is for his own benefit, for his own connection, his own spiritual fulfillment. That is until, well, Mark continues, later Simon and the others went out to find him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. This is why, that is why I have come, 
So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in synagogues and casting out demons. Here's that statement from earlier. This is why I have come here. He felt deeply he had been sent here to preach and proclaim the gospel of God, to be a good newser, as Pastor Bob mentioned last weekend. And he sensed that he was not sent to be a miracle worker or just a healer, but an establisher of a brand new day. And for that reason and for that purpose, Jesus preached with a focus. He knew time was short, that ministry was going, and so it was important for him to preach and teach with a fine focus. And so he preached and he taught and he placed himself with people and among people, realizing you may not understand this now, but you will. Mark records one more interaction in this passage. It says this, a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. He said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. He said, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest, let him examine you, take the offering required in the law of Moses for those that have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Now, first notice, Jesus doesn't just heal the man. Jesus healed again with great compassion. He healed with a compassion. Mark records that he, Jesus, was filled or was consumed with a compassion. Now, this is different than the other miracles that we've seen so far. In this instance, we see a characteristic in Jesus, a heart-filled compassion, modeling for us what it looks like to feel for others. We'll see him be compassionate again later in Mark, in chapter 6, when he comes ashore, he'll see a crowd and he'll say, the Bible says he felt a compassion for them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Jesus modeling compassion for us. But following this great compassion, he gets real serious. Mark notes that Jesus is stern. Jesus has just performed this leprosy-removing miracle and he asks for one thing in return. Don't tell anyone. And what does the man do? Well, Mark 1:45 says, the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. You had one job. Don't tell any, okay. The truth is the man may have meant well and thought he was helping Jesus but this slight disobedience slightly hindered the ministry of Jesus. Why? Well, one, again, he didn't want to be known as just the healer guy, the miracle worker guy. And two, practically, he couldn't walk into any town anymore. Mark 145 continues, as a result of this guy spreading the good news, crowds surrounded Jesus and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. 
Now, it's interesting. Some would say, some would argue, this is great success. It's a measure of great success. The ministry was working. The crowds were coming. But though the crowds grew, Jesus wanted followers, not fans. He wanted followers, not fans. Now, this comparison is not my own. It was introduced by Pastor Kyle Eidelman. He describes fans are enthusiastic admirers, quick to jump on the bandwagon and cheer when things are great. Followers, however, followers don't waver. They stick close, even when the outcome doesn't look favorable. A fan loves the fun. A follower is willing to work. I think of Pastor Kip. Pastor Kip is more than a fan of his Kansas City teams. He's a follower. He's in it through the thick and the thin, the good and the bad. And even if the Chiefs don't win today, he'll still be a follower. There's a difference. And as I read the Gospels, Jesus never seemed too interested in fans. He was looking for followers and not just any follower. He was seeking completely committed followers. He upped the ante. I don't just want followers. I want those that are all in 100%. And he would find them. Now, it's here that we're going to jump upwards in the text. And we find our end at the beginning. To this point, Mark has provided us a very descriptive glimpse as to how Jesus got the ministry rolling, which is valuable for character and situational context. But the point of the passage, the key to the passage, is found in the first four verses of today's passage. Verse 16 begins and reminds us, Jesus came for people. It says this, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who would later become Peter, and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Mark goes on in verse 19. He says this. A little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing nets. And he called to them at once. They also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with whom he hired. Twenty times in the New Testament, Jesus issues the same compelling and challenging invitation as he does here. Follow me. An invitation to, to leave the sidelines and get into the game. A seemingly simple ask until you consider its deeper implications. He wasn't asking them to follow him to the nearby coffee shop. He wasn't asking them to follow him for a project for the day. He was inviting them on a journey a journey without a timeline, a journey that would change their lives, a journey that would change the lives of others. He says, I will make you, or maybe your version says, you will become fishers of men. It's active tense. It's indicating this will be a gradual process of learning, 
I'll train you. I'm going to mentor you. I'll show you how. And follow talks about proximity. Jesus isn't saying, follow me from a distance. Follow me close. Learn from me. This journey would require them to keep their eyes focused forward, even when challenges would be put in their way and put this to the test. In the late 1800s, there was this great uh, explosion of evangelism in India. Intentional efforts to share the gospel with this country across the country. But India, on the whole, was not too enthusiastic with the idea. But that didn't deter those that felt they were called on mission to go there. One such missionary found himself in a particularly brutal village. A husband and a wife and two kids over time, professed a faith in Christ and would become baptized. Their village leaders found out about this and collected them and decided to make an example of them. They arrested the family and demanded that the dad renounce Christ or else. Without the gruesome details, he didn't and they didn't. Just before he died, The man uttered the words that would later be put into song and would become an anthem for life change. The words are these. I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The other verses will say, though none go with me, still I will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me, More than just a catchy song, the lyrics of this tell the story of someone who said yes to a seemingly simple question of, will you follow me no matter what? I mean, consider this. The the, the ask was this, come, follow me. That was it. That was the ask. That was the offer. But the real story is in their response Because their response was this, at once. Your version might say, immediately. In other words, they said yes without hesitation, in an instant, right away. I imagine they could not get their hands free of the net fast enough to say, Jesus, don't leave without me. In an instant, they were ready to follow Jesus without question. How does that look in 2019? I can only think of one example. This is my nephew, Nyan, over the years. Now, Nyan lives in Yakima. And ever since I've joined the family, Shauna's family, he and I have enjoyed some awesome, incredible uncle-nephew times, adventures. And when he would come visit us on this side of the state, I would usually cook up something for us to do together. It was recent, I think Christmas, Shauna made an observation. She said, Brian, do you realize Nyan never asks questions? All you have to say is, Nyan, grab your coat. And he does, and he's waiting by your car. You see, Nyan is always ready to go with me whenever and for whatever always and whether it's 
a Seahawks game or it's zip lining or it's going to the bookstore or it's getting an ice cream or it's just hanging out. It's not about the what, it's about the who. Nyan trusts me and he believes that I have his best in mind. So whatever we're up to, he is game for it. I believe that was the same way with Peter and Andrew, James and John. How could they even have a clue what they were getting into? They had no frame of reference for what lied ahead, but they knew they could trust the guy saying, follow me. They could trust the guy who was asking and making the invitation. And so while Nyan grabs his coat, these new disciples dropped their nets and they did so immediately and at once. These actions that indicate and communicate, I'm in, which begs the question for us, do you need the details to follow and say yes? Do you need the details before you can say, I'm all in, yes? Now granted, details make things a lot easier, but do you have the faith to say yes without? For the millennials and the generation wires in the room, this is a newspaper. <laughs> we didn't have monster.com growing up, and so when we wanted to look for a job, we'd open the paper and we'd find our way to this section, the classified ads. This is nostalgic and a history lesson now. And so I remember growing up for summer jobs and, and whatnot, you know, you take a red Sharpie and you circle the ones you're interested in, and it was a step process to secure the job. Step one, you'd, you'd find the jobs that were of interest to you, and step two, you would go about the applying business, maybe about going to the employer or turning in a resume or calling for more details, and then step three, maybe you'd get a call for an interview, and you'd get dressed up and you'd go in, and then if if you're the one, you'd get the job offer. And then step four was the all-important job negotiation. You know, the all-important questions. What's my salary? When do I start? What are my hours? Do I get paid vacation? And if you could strike a deal and agreeable terms, then poof, you are employed. You got a job. What's interesting here is that Mark gives us zero indication that any of that happened with these first four disciples. It was job offer, job acceptance, just that quick. Imagine if Jesus made that offer today. He says, hey, come follow me. The response, well... Thank you very much, Jesus. I'm honored, really, I appreciate it, but it's apparent what you've got going on is more like a startup, so I'm curious, can we talk about salary? Can we talk about downtime? Because I'm guessing it's gonna be a lot of people interaction, and to this point, my interaction's been with fish. So I'm just wondering, can we talk details? How long will I be on my feet? What am I going to be up to? What am I going to be doing? See, all too often we worry about, we focus on profession, and Jesus sees potential. 
Profession potential. Remember, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John were common guys without theological credentials or status. He met them, Jesus met them, as they labored as everyday guys. Now, the qualities they brought as fishermen certainly would become beneficial in ministry. Courage and teamwork and patience and energy and stamina. But Jesus chose these disciples not for who they were, but for what he could do through them. Though they were good at fishing, Jesus had a much bigger and better plan for them. When you're a disciple of Christ, he may ask you to do things differently than you did before. If you know your Bible, think about Gideon. As we read his story, to those that knew him, he was a farmer. We think about his profession. But to God, he saw potential. He said, I've got a crazy plan for you. Will you say yes? And that farmer defeated an army. You see, Jesus sees more in you than you might see. And sometimes we get wrapped up into our profession, what it is we do nine to five, that we forget Jesus can, will, and does use you whenever and whatever when you are willing to follow him. He used everyday fishermen to change the world, teaching them to become fishers of people. He called them to do what he did. And he wanted others to do what he did. First these four, and then to 12, and then to hundreds and thousands and thousands. There's a pastor in Oregon, Mark Allen Schlesky, and he said this. He said, Jesus didn't invite us to become theologians or Bible scholars. He didn't call us to become more religious. He didn't ask us to join a club or a political action committee. He simply asked us to follow him. And with this invitation, Jesus shows us what Christianity is all about. It's all about following Jesus. At its root, Christianity is not about theological systems or rules or how many times you show up on a weekend. It's about following Jesus. He simply said and asked, will you drop your net and follow me? And sitting here today, I'm convinced our nets are different. The things that we are holding on to tightly because it's what we know. It is our security. For some, it's money. Your net is money. For some, it's your job. For others, it's friends or your home. Maybe it's yourself or it's time. Let's talk about time. Jesus, time is something we have created. Jesus is not bound by time. Consider he approached these guys at an inopportune time. The first two are casting their nets, getting ready to go fishing. The other two are sitting there getting things worked out to go fishing again. There is no perfect time to follow him. So maybe your net is time. And I think for all of us, we have a death grip on the net of comfort. But what does that look like for us then? It's easy to say for Simon and Andrew, James and John, when they dropped their nets by the sea, it was a big deal. Don't skim over that. It meant giving up what they knew, their boats and their bait and their lines and their hooks, all these things that made them feel successful and safe and secure and put food on the table 
for dinner that night. And so following Jesus meant giving up their livelihood and their normal and their comfort for something bigger, maybe better, and certainly unknown. Following Jesus is just that way. We give up something for something far greater in return. In my first year at Skagit, when I was the, uh, began as the campus pastor in Mount Vernon, I was given uh, this, and it sits on my bookshelf. It says, let go, adventure awaits. How true is that? It's quite simple. All you have to do is let go for the adventure to follow. Now, I know this to be true. I have gone skydiving twice in my life. If you have not, let me describe what it's like. For me, I was harnessed to an instructor because I'm too scared to do it myself. And as, you, as, as it's your turn, you kind of shimmy up to the open door as you're thousands of feet above the ground. And as you get to the door, it is your turn. There's a bar right above the open door. And so I'm holding on to the bar for dear life, thinking to myself, did I pay for this? And all of a sudden, I hear my instructor say, all right, Byron, it's time. And I say, actually, it's Brian. And he says, it doesn't matter. And I say, okay. <laughs> so I'm holding on, and I'm like, this is it. And he says, you have to let go. Makes sense, right? I have to let go. I remember wearing the goggles and looking out that, that airplane door, and I could see the great adventure of a free fall right there, just outside, but I had to let go for the adventure to begin. In J.B. Phillips' translation of Philippians 3.14, he says it this way, I leave the past behind with my hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead. In this passage of Mark, Jesus is clearly the subject, performing miracles and teaching with authority and praying in solitude. But I would offer you and I are a close second because he's asking us to assess, are you a follower or are you a fan of mine? To admire him is to know about him, but to follow him is to know Jesus. And whether you sit here today and as someone who's journeyed with Jesus for a good amount of time or someone that's just considering for the first time what that might look like, know some things are true. Number one, saying yes to Jesus means saying no to other things. When you say yes to something, you're essentially saying no to other things. Like if you went into Dollar Tree with a dollar and purchased something, you're saying no to the rest of the store. So saying yes to Jesus will mean saying no to other things that come up in your life. Number two, Jesus is worth trusting. The road ahead will be full of surprises and blessings and lessons and laughter and tears. And it might take a hard right when you plan a hard left, but know that Jesus is worth trusting in the driver's seat. Number three, know that ultimately Jesus is worth following. There has been no one greater in our existence to follow ever. Jesus is perfect and he knows you and he loves you just as you are. And despite everything you bring to the table, he says, I still want you. Will you follow me? And again, what's cool is he says, follow. I'll be right here with you. Walk with me. 
Jesus is in the business of calling us off the bench and into the game, calling us higher for his glory and his purpose. We're going to sing a song in just a moment here in Bellingham and in Skagit, the same song written by the worship duo All Sons and Daughters. And in an interview, they were asked about this particular song, Called Me Higher. They shared that this song came out of a place of saying, God, I know what you want. I know what you're calling me to. So I'm going to do what you want me to do and go where you want me to go no matter what. And from that affirmation came the lyrics, you've called me higher, you've called me deeper, and I'll go where you lead me, Lord. Like those first disciples, the question for us is, are you ready to jump into the journey with Jesus? I love what Bob Goff says in his book, Love Does. Somewhere midpoint, he says, I used to think you had to be special for God to use you. But now I know all you have to do is say yes. Jesus is making the same three-worded offer to you and me thousands of years later after the first time Mark recorded it. Come, follow me. An invitation that requires a great faith and an intentionality, a decisive step away from ourselves and towards him. So the question is, Are you willing to drop your net? Because great adventure awaits.